Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. We're going through the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to look at the first 18 verses this morning. Our focus is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Experiencing tremendous pressure from the outside to compromise, to bow down to this idol, this gold image that Nebuchadnezzar makes. But what we find is greater is the strength that's within them than the pressure to compromise outside of them. 1 John 4 tells us this. It says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Greater is he that is in you. We live between two worlds, just like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know we're citizens of heaven. We know we're the children of God. But yes, we're also living in a very pagan, Christ-rejecting culture. And a lot of times we're fearful, aren't we? For our own lives, and am I going to compromise? Am I going to bow down? We're fearful for our kids, the influence upon them. Some of you with your, your grandchildren. But what we've got to see is that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Because of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's relationship with God, they don't buckle. They don't bow to this false god. They don't give prey to culture. They resist the masses. And they're able to stand faithfully and be used by God. And that's God's heart for us. One of my daughters is uh, reading through the book of Genesis, and this week we were talking about some of the things that she was reading, and she had questions about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and she says, Dad, it's been wicked for a really long time. None of this stuff is new. I'm like, yep, it, it sure is. That, that's the case. Very early on in the book of Genesis, we see a very dark culture, but yet God, throughout the scripture, throughout church history, has been looking for people whose heart is loyal to the Lord. Daniel's heart was loyal to the Lord, so God shows himself strong through Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their, their heart is loyal to God, so God shows himself strong. And the same is true today. We don't have to go through this life fearful. We don't have to be afraid of the influences. We need to be wise. We need to be understanding. But greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. It's so important to remember chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, God had spoke to Nebuchadnezzar through a dream. His dream was of a vision of, of a man, of a statue. And this statue had the head of gold. And then the chest and arms of silver and goat goes down. And God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar and said, you are the head of gold. Now Nebuchadnezzar, the first thing that he does is not acknowledging the one true living God, but building this image, this giant image, and the whole thing is of gold. It's overlaid with gold. In essence, what is he saying? I'm not just the head of gold. I'm everything. My kingdom's not going to be temporary. My kingdom is going to last forever. He had the complete res wrong response to the revelation of God. Our dimensions in the New King James are given to us in cubits. We understand things in feet. This is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. 90 feet tall and 9 feet, feet wide. We don't know as we read the text exactly 
what this looked like. It doesn't tell us what this image is made of. We do know from the Hebrew, the, the word image, it does speak of human figure. So this statue was, was made in human figure. You know, I've always kind of thought that Nebuchadnezzar maybe made it in his own image, but it's not in the text. As I was looking at this closer, it doesn't tell us that he made it in his, his own image. He may have tried to copy the dream and copy the, the, what was revealed to him in the dream, but the point is of this is he was building the wrong thing, wasn't he? He could have been pointing people to God. He could have been responding to the revelation that God had given to him in chapter 2. He's really headed down the pathway of pride. And if you read ahead in the study of Daniel, God is going to humble him, him greatly. So it causes us to ask the question. It's caused me to ponder, what am I building? What am I building? What am I pointing people to? God's communicating through his word, through his creation, through the Holy Spirit. And we will be building something in our lives. We're either going to be pointing people to Christ, or we're going to be pointing to ourselves, or we're going to be pointing to the gods of this age, of this world. But everybody's building. Everybody's building something. In 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, we see this encouragement. And just listen and take this in. This is 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. He's saying, build carefully. What are you building? For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The only foundation that's going to last is Christ. Make sure you're building on Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. So our work is going to pass through a fire. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he builds on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This is written to believers, a judgment for believers that isn't for salvation. This doesn't determine whether you're saved or not. That is your faith in Jesus Christ, but how you invested your life will be examined by this fire. Whether it was wood, hay, stubble, substance that can be burned up, or these precious gems that pass through the fire and you receive a reward. Now, why would reward matter in heaven? Well, we see those laying their crowns down at the feet of Jesus. We have something to offer to the Lord in, in worship. We're going to care at that moment, at that point in our lives. The scripture tells us that, that we'll suffer loss. And so we've got to pause at this moment and saying, am I being foolish like Nebuchadnezzar? I'm building the wrong thing. I'm pointing to the, the wrong thing. Or am I pointing to Jesus Christ? And I think there is a tendency sometimes for us to do the right thing for the wrong motivation. Wouldn't you agree? We're doing the right thing, but we're really wanting people to think well of us instead of to think well of Christ. Oh, he's a good husband. He's a great wife. He's a good worker. What, what a great dad. What a, what, a, what a great, great, great mom. Instead of saying, I want to point people to Christ. And we could be going through our lives, and in essence, we're building our own gold image, aren't we? We could call this our legacy project, right? This was Nebuchadnezzar's legacy project. 
but we don't want a legacy project. We want to point people to Jesus Christ. That's what we want our legacy to be. John the Baptist had it right. He said, I must decrease, but he must increase. I don't want people focusing on me. I want them focusing upon Christ. They would ask John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? And he'd say, no, I am not the Christ. May we be reminded of that. We are not Jesus. We are not the Savior. We're not the Messiah. We're not going to solve people's problems. We're not an answer to their sin. Our job is to point people to Jesus. Do you know John the Baptist never did a miracle? But everything that he spoke about Jesus was true. He pointed people to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that's what we want to be building. We want to be pointing people to Christ, not building some foolish gold image. In verse 2, And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Eight categories of officials, of dignitaries, to come together to the capital, to the province of Babylon, for this dedication of this giant image. Verse 3, so the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So you have all of these leaders gathered together. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Remember, this was a dominating world empire, taking many cultures captive. So you have many peoples, many nations, many languages, that at a time when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever doesn't fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar really liked his death threats. This is his primary way of getting things done. He did it earlier with the dream. If you can't come up with the dream and the interpretation, you're going to be killed. And now he says to this mass of people that's gathered together, if you don't bow down when you hear the music quite a concert that was happening, all of these different instruments that are listed, coming together in symphony, all kinds of music, all styles represented, no doubt the best musicians that Babylon had to offer. When you hear the music, that's the cue to bow down and to worship this image. Nebuchadnezzar's trying to unite his kingdom under this false worship. There's been many political leaders throughout history that have tried to use religion to strengthen their power. We see that with Hitler. In his early stages of his leadership, he really courted the church. And he really got a lot of the church leaders to think that he was a pretty good guy. He didn't initially come out and say, I want to destroy the church. The leader of the youth program from Nazi Germany is quoted saying this, if we act as true Germans, we act according to the laws of God. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer, serves Germany, and whoever serves Germany serves God. Do you see what he did there? He says, if you serve Hitler, 
you're serving God. One thing we know of Germany at the time is they were extremely patriotic and saw that as their duty before God to be patriotic to to their country. And that set them up to be able to follow a man like Hitler. They couldn't decipher that their loyalty to God came before their loyalty to their country. They were duped. And Nebuchadnezzar's trying the the same thing here. This is quite a gathering, quite a group of people that are brought together in one location. In verse 7, so at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Music's mentioned four times in our text. God doesn't waste words. This music was a powerful tool in order for Nebuchadnezzar to get his way. As people heard the music, then they responded. All of these people groups, can you imagine all these ethnic groups, and they're bowing down before this this image. We know that music is very influential, and it was created by God. It can be used for light. It can be used for darkness. Can you imagine the kind of music that there's going to be in heaven around the throne room of God? God's created all of the instruments to be used for his glory. That's why here at RMC, we do put great emphasis on worshiping the Lord through music. It's what God designed it for. And as we worship the Lord, our hearts get open to God and God speaks to us in a very unique and personal way. You can probably remember different points in your life and your journey with God where you've been in worship and the Lord has spoken to you. And when you hear that song, it reminds you about who God is. It gives you the right perspective. But Satan also knows the power of music, doesn't he? There's an article written by New York Times. It's called Under the Influence, and I quote, it says, unlike visual media, music is a powerful social force that also traps, taps into an individual's personal identity, memories, and mood. So they're saying that music is even more powerful than visual media. Can you remember a movie that you watched five years ago? Have you ever re-watched a movie and you're trying to decide, have I seen this or not? And you finally convince yourself, yes, I have seen this, but I have no idea how it ends. If you're young, bear with me, you'll get there. Right? <laughs> but you can remember a song, can't you? You know? And what does that song do to you? Not, not only do you remember the song, but it takes you back to a moment of time. It affects your mood. We think about the song Happy by Pharrell Williams. You know what I'm talking about? You, you listen to that song and you can't help but tap your foot and your leg a little bit here and a little bit there. It, it's kind of entertaining to, to watch people as they respond to that song. So, so music is very powerful. And be careful as you're listening to music that you don't find yourself bowing down to the false gods of this world. Nebuchadnezzar, the world system's always going to strike up the band. So no, okay, I understand. I, I understand what's taking place here. And I don't want to fall down into idolatry. The masses are duped here. The masses fall under this this pressure, and they're they're willing to go along with Nebuchadnezzar. But there's three men who resist in verse 8. 
Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. So the Chaldeans, they come, and they're going to accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They spoke and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever doesn't fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you've set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're given Babylonian names. Their Hebrew names were stripped from them, but they never lost their identity. They never forgot that they were children of God with Hebrew roots. They were Jews. Don't forget who you are. In the midst of the world system, in the midst of Nebuchadnezzar saying you have to bow down, remember your identity. You're the child of God. John the disciple, he refers to himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That formed his identity. You're created by God in God's image. You're God's child. Men, you're God's son. Ladies, you're God's daughter. That's our identity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego held on to who they were in the Lord. O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. There's a point in this where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hear this news that they have to bow down to the gold image and they stand faithfully. They stand faithfully. And they will not serve the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. They not, will not worship the gold image that has been set up. Now church, gang, who's not mentioned here? Daniel, right? So this is the big question. Where's Daniel? Did he compromise? I don't think so. If he were to compromise, I think that we would find that in Scripture. Where the Bible's silent, we must be silent. We're left with a question we can't answer. It's logical. It's possible. Daniel has been put in a position of authority. He's the chief administrator. He's sitting in the king's gate. He may have been in some part of, other part of the world doing the king's business. But ultimately, we don't know where he is. The focus is upon Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but I think it's unfair to assume that he did, did compromise. These men, this was a worship issue for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we're not going to serve these gods. We're not going to bow down before these gods, even if it costs us our life. In Exodus 20, 4 and 5, God had commanded the children of Israel in their worship. I'll read it to you. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. So God says, do not bow down to these false gods. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're men of the word and they're honoring the word of God. Where do you think that they could find the strength to stand faithfully amongst such great pressure. I think it came from their consistent walk with God. They were regularly consisting, consistently bowing down before the one true living God. So when they're tempted at this moment, this very important moment, this 
crucible moment, it's more natural for them to continue in their worship of the one true living God. So bowing down before God, worshiping God, being in fellowship with God, that becomes the source of our strength to be able to stand faithfully before the Lord, to honor God. Have you established a hill that's worth dying on? These guys are saying it's better to die than to dishonor God. Has our obedience to God gotten to that point? Wouldn't it have been easy for them to go, well, you know what? God knows my heart. I'm bowing down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing up. God, I really love you. I'm, I'm serving you. I don't have any other choice here. I'm in Babylon. I must do as the Babylonians do, but they choose. No, I'm gonna honor God. Now, please understand, these guys didn't go around looking to pick a fight. You know, they knew they were in a pagan culture. They knew that they were taken captive. We don't see them going to Nebuchadnezzar and saying, look, you can't build this. We don't see them going to everybody else saying, hey, look, you, you can't bow down. They just said, look, I know for me personally, this would be sin. This would be compromise. I can't do this, and I can't bow down. God wants us to stand faithfully. Is there a stand that you need to make in your family? Are you being pressured by your family maybe to do something that's in contradiction to to God's word? Are you being pressured at work? Are you being pressured by friends? You'll know when the moment comes. You don't have to go look for it. You'll look around and the masses are bowing down to a false god and the spirit of God's telling you, this is your time to stand. This is your time to be obedient to the Lord. They they stand faithfully. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar's angry. You know? There's actually somebody who will spite me. Who will not follow my command. Nebuchadnezzar knows these guys. Chapter 1. They stood before Nebuchadnezzar with Daniel because they wouldn't eat of the king's table, chose to honor God in their diet. Chapter 2, Daniel's the one who interprets the dream, and he says, would you give a promotion to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? These guys were in charge of the province. He knows them. He interacts with them, and now he's angry at them. Is he angry with them because of their job performance? Is he angry with them because of the decisions that they're making in the business realm. No, he's angry over one thing, their worship. And we see that reflected in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he wants to verify that this is true, he's going right to the source, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up. Church, wake up call, we see this in our culture. Our culture's saying what? Be tolerant of every aspect of worship, no matter what it is, even if it's some crazy type of sin. Hey, that's okay. Everybody has freedom in this country to do what they want. Tolerance. And there's tolerance until you worship Jesus Christ. And then people get angry that you worship Jesus Christ. They get angry that you read your Bible. And they say, hey, look, You can't do that. Because you worship Christ, you can't work here. 
We don't want Christ followers working here. If you're a Christ follower, you can't speak about your worship to the one true living God. It doesn't seem very tolerant to me, does it? It doesn't seem very equal to me. But we shouldn't be surprised, should we? This is taking place for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's always going to take place when there's a, a pagan culture. The church has been persecuted. It will be persecuted. Throughout the world, the persecution is, is much worse. So, so don't be surprised when someone's against you because of your faith in Christ. Ultimately, they're against Christ. Paul said to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The darkness doesn't appreciate the light. The light is either going to bring us to a place of brokenness and drawn to God, or it's going to cause us to repel God. In some ways, I think it's healthy. And you're saying, really? Why? Because traditionally in our culture in the United States of America, we would consider ourselves to be a Christian nation. And with that, the church has been extremely lukewarm. Because culturally, there's no cost to be a Christian. I, I, I can call my, myself a Christian. I don't even know what that means. I'm born in America, so I must be a Christian. And now the gray is beginning to be burned up, isn't it? And it becomes very evident in a culture that's not Christian. Let's wake up. We don't live in a Christian nation. We haven't for a really long time. It's not cultural in America to be a Christian. So all of a sudden you have a clear distinction. Here's Christ's followers. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand out, don't they? And more and more so where we're moving in our culture, if we follow Christ without doing a whole lot, with simply saying, I have convictions to follow the, the word of God, you stand out. This may be a newsflash to you, but if you have a biblical view of marriage, you stand out in our culture. That's not the cultural view of marriage any longer. If you have a biblical view on life, that life begins in the womb, that's not a cultural view on life. That's not saying a whole lot. Those things are very simple. This is God's defini definition of marriage and God's definition of life, and all of a sudden you stand out, don't you? And yet in that, there's an opportunity for God to reveal his glory. So we see culture going the same way as Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 15, he's speaking still to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, the fourth time music is mentioned in the text, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not worship, you will be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Oh, isn't Nebi gracious? Isn't that so nice of him to give him a second chance? All right, guys, maybe I wasn't clear in my communication. So the band's going to strike up. When you hear the music, you need to bow down and worship the image. And if you don't, we've already got the fiery furnace ready. The fire's already going. We're going to toss you into the flame. And then there's this amazing statement of pride and arrogance at the end of verse 15. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? What's Nebuchadnezzar saying? I'm the ultimate authority. 
yeah, I've, I've built this image, but I don't think this image has any power. I don't think any of these false gods have power. He wouldn't say that they were false gods. And I know that you're men of faith, and your God can't deliver you out of my hand. And the stage is set for God's glory. The stage is set for, for God to work in a tremendous way. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That's radical right there. Hey, you think you're in charge, you're threatening my life, but I have confidence in God, and I don't need to debate with you. It's wisdom on their, po- on their part to not try to give some explanation. Their answer is very brief, and it's very concise in verse 17 and 18, but it's very good. It's very thorough. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They're trusting God. They stand faithfully, but they're also trusting continually. Please think this through with me for just a moment. The balance that we find in their statement from verse 17 and verse 18. What are they saying in verse 17? Look at it quickly. God, you're able. God, you're able to deliver us out of the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Part of trusting God is believing that he is able to do the supernatural. And sometimes as believers, if we're honest, we don't believe that. We don't think that God can deliver us from Nebuchadnezzar, that God can answer, that God can work in the fiery furnace. And we're selling God short. God would want us to believe that he is able to deliver. So that's an aspect of faith. But then we also see the balance to that in verse 18. What do they say? They say, even if God doesn't deliver... We're going to continue to serve him, and we will not serve your gods. We will not bow down to your image. Their obedience to God wasn't conditional on God's deliverance. So here's what we find is a beautiful understanding of faith. As we face trials, as we face difficulties, as we face fiery furnaces, we are to cry out to God in faith, believing that he is able to deliver if he wants to. Don't sell God short. If he wants to heal, he'll heal. If he wants to provide financially, he will. If he wants to give a breakthrough, he will. Believe that he's able to do it and approach him in humility. But then also to understand that we want God's will and sometimes in this life, God chooses not to deliver. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're aware of this. This could mean our life. God in his infinite wisdom and his plan could allow for us to die in this fiery furnace. We're going to look at the second half of this next week. A lot of you know the story. God does deliver. They're saved supernaturally. But does God always deliver in these situations? Has there been believers and people of God who have been martyred because they took a stand? Absolutely. Why does God choose to deliver sometimes and then other times he chooses to allow someone to die and to go home to be with the Lord because he's God? And so for us to really understand faith is not that God's obligated to my faith. 
Not because that I believe that he's able to do something, that that means he will do something. And be willing to accept his will that he sees what I don't see. This is similar to what Job wrote as Job went through so many trials in his life. He said, though you slay me, I will still trust you. That's continually trusting in God. That's difficult. So we ask that God would deliver. We ask that God would provide. We ask that God would move in a supernatural way, believing that he's able, but then saying, Lord, even if you don't, I'm still gonna serve you. I'm gonna trust you. I'm not gonna serve the gods of this age. What happens when things don't turn out the way that you thought? What if God doesn't heal from the terminal disease, from the chronic pain? What if God doesn't provide financially? What if God doesn't do a restorative work in a relationship? What if a spouse has a hard heart and continues in adultery and chooses divorce? Are you gonna continue to serve the Lord? Are we going to continue to, to trust him that he doesn't make mistakes? When we observe this hurricane, Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Harvey, watching it come through the Caribbean on the news, there's one island and another island miles away, not far, close islands, and this island over here, devastated. 95% of the buildings affected. Could you imagine? And then this other island that's close by, hardly any impact to the point where they assumed that the other island probably had the same experience. Now, do you think there was believers on both islands? Yes. God's people are everywhere. There's a remnant of God's people everywhere. Do you think that both islands were praying? Yes. So then we conclude that this island had more faith. And this island over here, well, they just didn't have enough faith. Because if they had enough faith, then they could control the outcome. Is that biblical faith to you? No, both were praying, both were believing. Believers praying throughout the world, God is listening, and he's doing what he sees best. So don't let anybody ever come to you, and you will meet them, that will say, oh, you know what? If you had more faith, then you would experience deliverance. It just, just believe a little bit more. In fact, true faith, greater faith, is not my will, but your will be done. And Christ prayed that as well in the Garden of Gethsemane. This poem expresses how God makes no mistakes, but yet we struggle to understand his plan. The author is unknown. The title is He Makes No Mistakes. My father's way may twist and turn. My heart may throb and ache. But in my soul, I'm so glad to know he makes no mistakes. My cherished plans may go astray. My hopes may fade away. But I'd still trust my Lord to lead, for he doth know the way. Have you ever had your cherished plans go astray? Your, your hopes fade away? Though night be dark, and it may seem that day will never break, I'll pin my faith, my all in him. He makes no mistakes. There's so much now I cannot see. That's so true. So much we can't see. My eyesight's far too dim. But come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. For by and by, the mist will lift. And plain it all he'll make. 
Through all the way, though dark to me, he made no mistakes. He made no mistakes. You may find yourself at that place this morning because you've made a stand, because you've stood faithfully, there has been a trial that has resulted because of that stance. It's not always easy. You're looking at the fiery furnace, or maybe you're going through a difficult circumstance that has nothing to do with the stance you made. It just has to do with life, this side of eternity. And you're going, what does faith look like? Well, faith looks like trusting the Lord, asking him to deliver, asking him to do the supernatural, but then trusting, saying, okay, Lord, you don't make mistakes. To me, it comes back to the cross. It comes back to Calvary. Because we look at God's character and it's proven at the cross. We know the Father loves us because he gave his son. We know Jesus loves us because he surrendered his life upon the cross. So do we understand all the trials of life? Do we understand why God says yes sometimes and why God says no? Absolutely not. But do we understand why God loves us? Not fully. Why would you love me? Why would you give me your son? What a mystery. So I'm willing to accept the love that I don't understand, and that love then gives me confidence in the midst of the storm. Is this decision of faith one that's based upon our emotions? No, it's not. There'll be times in the storm, in the difficulty, in the crushing bros of life that our emotions, and Satan loves to play on it, that will go, I don't know if you're good. God, I don't know if you're good. God, I don't know if you're trustworthy. Where are you in the midst of the storm? And we have to fight through our emotions and our own heart and look at the cross and look at our Savior who was brutalized for us on the cross and go, God, I know you're good. And if I'm honest, my emotions are telling me something else, but I'm choosing to trust you. Though you slay me, I will trust you. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. What are you building with your life? What am I building with my life? Are we building on the foundation of Christ? Are we doing our own gold image, our 90-foot statue? Are we standing faithfully? How do we stand faithfully? By bowing regularly to Christ, being in worship to Christ, and then finally, trust continually. Father, I trust you with all my heart. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and thank you for this time that we've had in your word. And Lord, we ask that you would bring application through the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to point people to you, to resist pointing to ourselves. Help us to stand in this culture. Help us to not be afraid when those times come where the pressure is to compromise, that we could be faithful to you, faithful to your word in a loving, Christ-honoring way. God, in the trials, we we don't understand. In the fiery furnaces, Lord, we do ask that you would do the supernatural, that you would do only what you can do, but also we trust you with the outcome. We know that you see best, and you know best. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.